to the Injured List Podcast, your source for all sports injury topics. For the weekend warrior to the sports fantasy guru, we keep you in the action and out of the injured list. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the host of the Injured List Podcast, Brian Scott. November 18th, 2018. What was that day like? Third down and nine at the Houston 24, Smith in the gun. I remember the play. I remember pre-snap, you know, making a protection adjustment. It was a pressure look. Smith gets the snap. Here comes pressure. Kareem gets him down with J.J. Watt. A deep sack on Smith. And I'll tell you what, Smith is hurt badly. To look down and to see your leg crooked, like bending where it shouldn't bend, certainly is an unusual sight. Hey, everybody. This is Brian Scott, host of The Injured List. And in today's episode, we're going to take a look at the injury to Alex Smith from the perspective of a healthcare provider and why his case is so unique and what makes his story so compelling. So stick with us and we'll get started right after this. You're listening to the Injured List Podcast with your host, Brian Scott, your go-to resource for all sport injury-related topics. For show notes and other resources, visit theinjuredlist.com. Now, back to the show. Hey, guys. How are you? Thanks for joining me again. Let's get started. Now, the first thing I want to talk about with regards to Alex Smith is his injury. He sustained a open tibia fracture as well as a fibular fracture. Open meaning the bone actually broke and then protruded through the skin and was exposed to the outside environment. That being his uniform, his sock, the grass, the turf, whatever, wherever you are at that time. And these fractures are not the ones that you will typically see in athletics, although it has happened to some pretty high-level athletes. Namely, Joe Theismann had this back in 1985, ironically, on the same date as Alex Smith. And... There was also an NCAA player who had this back a few years ago during the NCAA tournament, which to me was actually even more rare because it was a non-contact type injury. He was just landing from a jump. So these injuries do happen. The more common way that you would see this, though, is usually with a high energy type of trauma. So a motor vehicle accident or somebody who is crossing the street gets hit by a car or somebody who falls from a significant height. You will also see this in military personnel who have a gunshot or blast wound type of injuries which cause fractures of the bone and open wounds to the skin. But you don't typically see it on the football field. That being the case, orthopedic surgeons usually are 
familiar with these types of injuries and are more than able to treat them and usually treat them quite regularly, believe it or not, especially at these major level one trauma centers where they can see any everything. The difference with Alex is not necessarily in the injury and the immediate treatment, but more in the aftermath that occurred just before he was about to the hospital. The most crucial thing in the initial treatment, aside from stabilizing the fracture, is getting him to the hospital where he can receive IV antibiotic, where he can receive a tetanus booster or shot, and where the wound can be irrigated or debrided and cleaned of any debris that may be visual or noticeable and then have the fracture either temporarily stabilized or permanently fixed. You could make the case, in Alex's case, to temporarily fix it with what's called an external fixator, which is an external device that has pins that go into the bone to basically position them and stabilize them for a temporary period of time until you're then able to go back in and fix it with a more definitive type of fixation which is the plates and the screws, which is what they did in Alex's case. And there's no reason that they shouldn't have done that. I'm just saying you have options at that point. Based on what we saw during the documentary on, of his post-operative x-rays, the fixation looked beautiful. I mean, they had everything properly aligned. It looked great. I would have been ecstatic walking out of that surgery as well if I was with those surgeons after seeing the before and after shots. So there was no reason to think that Alex was at any greater risk for developing complications than any other person. The, the big complications associated with this type of injury are usually compartment syndrome, which is when the compartments of the lower leg fill up with pressure, which can compromise and injure vessels and nerves and muscle tissue. And the other known complication is infection. That infection can be a superficial infection or it can be a deep infection that goes into the bone. And that's termed osteomyelitis. Now, around the time of the injury, when the fir patient first presents to the hospital and they go to the operating room, and then sometimes for 24, even up to 48 hours afterwards, they will have received antibiotics through an IV with the sole purpose of trying to prevent infection from setting in. And this is especially important in people with open fractures of bone. And the antibiotics can vary from one institution to the other, but there's usually a general consensus on what those antibiotics are as far as what classification of antibiotics you're using and what bacteria you're trying to prevent. I'm going to take a little break and a comeback, and we're going to go a little bit deeper into Alex's injury. And I'm going to talk a little bit about those complications as well. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Injured List Podcast with your host, Brian Scott, your go-to resource for all sport injury-related topics. For show notes and other resources, visit theinjuredlist.com. Now, back to the show. Okay, welcome back. So, Let's get into a little bit more detail about the injury itself. Now, an open fracture of the tibia is one of the more common open fracture bones 
It's a major weight-bearing bone of the lower leg. And in Alex's case, as with a lot of others, the fracture was caused by a certain type of mechanism. And usually that mechanism becomes obvious when you've had a chance to review the x-rays. And in professional sports, we always have the luxury of video replay. But the pattern of the fractured bone can kind of give you some information as to what the forces were that caused the injury in the first place. And if you look at the video replay and you look at the imaging studies like the x-rays and the CAT scan, Alex suffered a spiral type of fracture up the tibia. And what's impressive about his was just how far that actually traversed up the tibia. It basically went from his ankle all the way up to just below his knee. So there was a tremendous amount of rotational torque on that part of the leg at the time of the injury to cause that. Now, when you have an associated open wound where the bone has come out of the skin, orthopedists will classify that based on the size of the wound. And based on those classification systems, it will kind of help guide them as far as what treatment to do. Those classification systems have been developed over years and through research and looking at studies, both past and present. And over the years, the recommendations are tweaked to meet current standards of practice. But regardless, with any open fracture, stabilization of the fracture irrigation or debridement of the dirty wounds and administration of IV antibiotics are of the utmost important right away. And usually the recommendations say that you should have all that in place and performed as early as six hours after the injury, depending on how significant a wound there is, how significant the fracture is, where it's located, which bone, which part of the body, etc. And timing becomes of the utmost importance in treatment. So now knowing that Alex is a NFL starting quarterback and in Washington, D.C., where there's some great medical institutions, I mean, you couldn't be in a better environment to have this all taken care of in an adequate amount of time. And there's no reason to think that there was anything delayed. If you listen to the surgeons in the documentary, they were very happy with uh, how everything went. And basically, he was taken right off the field, right to the hospital, right into the surgical suite. Um, I'm sure that this happened in a very quick amount of time, more so than it would have been for any other average person coming in off the street. Just unfortunate how medicine is, but that's how it works. Now... Alex had a very complex, fra complex fracture, which you don't typically see from a sports injury. The, the less complex fractures in the tibia can typically be fixed with some type of what they call uh, intramedullary nail, which is basically a titanium rod that goes down through the bone and helps realign and stabilize everything. But in Alex's case, they needed to do plates and screws and make multiple incisions along the leg. You know, we'll never know for sure what caused this rapid infection to set in, but you can surmise that maybe it was the fact that he had an open wound and they had to make additional incisions to do hardware. We'll just never know. 
and anybody that tells you they know or gives you some type of theory, it's all speculation. Now, if you look, listen to the video and you saw the documentary, you'll see that he was doing well the first couple of days post-operatively, but because he was taking some IV pain medications, they wanted to hold him over a little longer, and he had been running a little low-grade fever, which is very common after surgery. Most healthcare providers don't get nervous until your fevers start reaching about 101.5 or higher, because usually that's an indication that there's some type of indwelling infection. And in Alex's case, that did happen, and it happened on, I think, the second day after surgery. There's a mantra in medicine called the post-operative Ws, and it basically are these things that you have to be aware of in the immediate post-operative period that can potentially cause infections, and they all start with the letter W. And the wound is the first W of all of those Ws. The reason the wound is number one is because it can basically happen at any point in time after surgery. A wound infection can set in very quickly, and it can happen almost immediately, especially when you're dealing with an open fracture. So kudos to the physicians who took off the bandages and actually took a look at the wound. Uh, unfortunately, I can't tell you how many times that's probably not done when it should be done, and things are often missed. But because they did that, they were able to see very clearly that he was developing a very serious condition known as necrotizing fasciitis. Essentially, the soft tissue and the skin were dying in his leg. And that was evident by the picture which showed the blistering and the blackened skin. Those were all classic, almost textbook findings of a condition known as necrotizing fasciitis, which is also known as flesh-eating disease. It's a very rapid condition that comes on quickly and is very aggressive. It has to be treated equally as aggressive. The problem is, is it can be difficult to eradicate. Now, we're going to take another short break, and when we come back, I want to go into the condition, necrotizing fasciitis, and and. This is the thing that really separates Alex's case from all the others and what makes it such a compelling story because this is a very serious condition. And despite all the efforts by the providers, surgeons, the hospital staff, they were unable to eradicate this for some time. So we're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Devil's Advocate is a weekly sports talk show for the casual and diehard sports fan to be heard. My good friend, host Abe Delgado, wants to provide a show that is all about the fans. You can come on live or call to give your opinions on anything sports. I'm a regular guest on the show to talk about all things related to sports injuries. So we hope you'll join us and participate every Tuesday at 8 p.m. on Facebook Live. You're listening to the Injured List Podcast with your host, Brian Scott your go-to resource for all sport injury-related topics. For show notes and other resources, visit theinjuredlist.com. Now, back to the show. It just progressively got worse. And Alex's fever is through the roof and his blood pressure is dropped. Alex is not Alex anymore. 
It's test after test after test. I get a call then that his blood cultures are positive, meaning he has bacteria in his blood. And if that bacteria in your blood causes issues like blood pressure issues and heart rate issues, you become septic. And that's when, you're, that's when things get serious. How bad? Uncontrolled, you could die. Okay, so it was at this point that things really took a serious turn for the worse. And this is really what makes this case so unique. He was getting septic. When you hear that a patient is having a really high fever, and then they start having issues with their blood pressure, sepsis is the thing that comes to their mind. The tests that his wife was referring to typically include blood cultures, other tests to look at markers for possible infection or inflammation, and things to rule out stuff like compartment syndrome, possibly blood clots. There's a lot of other things that can sometimes mimic being septic or that can cause septic. Sept being septic is usually the result of some other process. And unfortunately, in Alex's case, it was the necrotizing fasciitis. Now, luckily, they again examined his wound, even though it had looked fairly normal on day one. It was, there was a drastic change subsequently when he started having these fevers. So, right before this, he was about to go home, which is the most amazing thing because he was feeling good and he had some low-grade fevers, which was not unusual. And so this literally happened within 24 hours or so, maybe even less. I'm not exactly sure of the exact timeline. But this is the nature of the beast when you're talking about neck fash, as we call it in the medical field. It is a very aggressive, very scary thing to have happen. And when you're talking about a healthy 34-year-old professional quarterback sitting in the hospital, this is the last thing that you would think about. So once they took a look and saw that wound, this must, they must, panic must have set in. But, you know, as healthcare providers, you're trained to not get panicked. You're trained to basically react to your instincts and do what you know you need to do. And in that case, what you have to do is another emergent surgery. And you're trying to basically get in there, find the tissue that's being Dot that's dying basically get rid of it look for any suspicious looking tissue like muscles and bones and whatever ligaments tendons all that stuff that looks like it's infected or dying must be removed because otherwise the microorganisms will just continue to spread now while they're in there they're taking samples of the tissue and sending it to the lab to get confirmation that this is what they're dealing with and usually those confirmatory laboratory tests will come back very quickly. Usually you'll get some information even before you leave the operating room. And then the process starts about <clears throat> aggressive IV antibiotics because that's the only way you're going to eliminate, eliminate this. Now, while they're in there and they're cleaning the wounds, usually they have to take or excise a lot of tissue. And this usually means that you cannot then close it there's no skin to then wrap around all the stuff. And they showed very graphic images of all this. 
stuff that most people don't ever see. So you could also have the ability to put some antibiotic powders and other things into the wounds, again, to attack, attack the microorganisms, the bacteria right at, at the source. But you must combine it with some type of IV antibiotic administration as well. Now, I think what really had them baffled or what really set them back too was that even with the really potent antibiotics, these broad spectrum antibiotics, meaning antibiotics that cover a lot of different bacteria, they weren't seeing much of a response in Alex's condition. And every time they went back in there, it didn't seem like they were making much progress toward eradicating the infection. When that starts to happen, you really then have to sit there and think, well, we might have to take the leg off. This might be the only way. And what I mean by that is the only way to save his life. Because the further along you get in the septic process, the more end organ damage you will have. Your kidneys will start to fail. Your liver will start to fail. Your lungs eventually will start to fail. Your brain will get toxic. A lot of bad things will happen and it could cost you your life. So they were at this point with Alex, which is amazing to think that just a few days earlier, they were basically doing what most orthopedic surgeons consider a fairly routine standard procedure that they do all the time. So to go from that to this extreme, wow. You can bet that the healthcare providers felt the stress and were feeling this um, impact their, their lives and their professions and careers as much as anybody else in the room, including Alex's family. The, the Most healthcare providers take this stuff very seriously and to heart. They take it home with them. They wear it on their sleeve. And you can kind of hear that come out in the documentary when they interviewed them. Uh, we're going to take another short break and we'll be right back after this to discuss a little bit more about his recovery. One of our sponsors is the Perkintal and Creamery Coffee Shop and Ice Cream Shop located in Concord, North Carolina, next to the Concord Mills Mall, just down the block from Charlotte Motor Speedway. They offer pastries, food, chocolates. They have room rentals for birthday parties, too. It's run, owned, and operated by my good buddy, Sean Colas. If you stop into the shop, if you have time and you're in the area, let them know Brian from the injured list sent you. He'll take care of you. If you want to reach out to them, check out the PerkintownCreamLeague.com or call them 980-299-6969. Support your local small business. They need it right now. The muscle in the anterior or front compartment of the leg was so severely compromised that it had to be excised. When it got down to when all the debridements were done, and we said, okay, now he's missing everything from the knee to his ankle and like side to side. And that's the first time Alex was really somewhat awake. I do remember kind of coming to, my family was all there. And then I distinctly having the kind of the talk with all the doctors and Elizabeth and my dad coming in the room. And that was kind of the next step. 
uh, for me, and it was kind of the reality of where I was. And it wasn't until after that that I felt like I was aware of the repercussions of what had happened. So now we've got this lower leg that's ravaged and uh, deformed and, and not even sure we can keep it, and uh, maybe we shouldn't. Doesn't it make some sense, maybe, that life would be better without it? Maybe cutting off your legs is the best thing, you know? And so you have a couple options at this point, and then laying them out. And, and, and one was the limb salvage, you know, that they were going to be taking muscles from the other part of my, other parts of my body and transplanting them down there, and then amputation. But I didn't want to have to, like, be choosing between these two things. But I decided that I elected to try to do the limb salvage to try to, to try to save it. Well, that was some, that was some pretty powerful stuff there. You know, what I really appreciate about this documentary is that it gives you both sides of the story as far as you get to hear from the patient and from his family about the decisions that they had to make based on the information they were receiving from the physicians who were taking care of them. But you also get to hear from the physicians as well who were doing the surgeries to try and salvage Alex's leg. And, you know, unfortunately, knowing what they know, uh, you know, the, you kind of know the outcomes, you know what the severity is, what you're dealing with, and trying to convey that information to the family in a sense that makes complete sense and they understand the repercussions of their decisions and the potential consequences of their actions. It's very rare that you actually see a documentary where all of that is put together and you get to see how all-encompassing it is for all of those people involved. So as you heard in that clip, he lost a lot of the front and part of his lower leg, which is a really important compartment of the lower leg. There's some major nerves and muscles in that part that help control movement of your ankle and your foot. And without that tissue there, you lose a lot of function. And even though they were able to transfer muscle and some skin from other parts of his body, he will never have a normal lower leg. And the rest of the video goes on to basically show how Alex progressed through his rehab how he was granted special permission to go and work and do therapy with some of the armed forces rehab centers. It was granted special permission by the Secretary of Defense to do that. And the reason for that was at that point, after all those procedures and all the stuff that had happened to him, at that point in his recovery, he was basically at the same kind of juncture as a lot of those war veterans were in dealing with their traumatic injuries. And that just goes to show you how extensive and how severe Alex's injury developed. So I thought the documentary did a great job of really outlining the timetable of how all of this kind of progressed, showing each step of the way, the emotions, the difficult decisions that his family had to make while he was basically out of commission while the septic, he didn't really even know what was going on, couldn't really even make decisions for himself. 
And also, you got to see how the doctors struggled with trying to figure out what they could do next to try and eradicate the infection and preserve his leg as best as they could to allow him to sustain a normal life. And it's great to see in the end that he's able to run around with his kids and play and enjoy sports still. I'm not so sure we're ever going to see Alex compete at a high level in an NFL game. What I hope to see and what I think he's capable of doing is taking a snap. And I have a feeling that at some point we'll probably will see him back on the field again to take some type of ceremonial snap from under center and maybe even complete a pass. Not so sure it'll be much more than that. And it doesn't have to be. I mean, he doesn't have to prove anything to anybody. He's already overcome a lot of odds and gotten back to a pretty high level of function compared to a lot of other people who've gone through similar things. So I hope that I was able to provide a little bit more information and give another perspective on that documentary that was done by E60 from ESPN. And it was, it was well done. Great job. And thank you for joining us this episode. Stay tuned for some future episodes coming your way. And don't forget, join us or take a look at our pages, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All you have to do is search for Injured List Podcast and you should be able to find our pages. In the meantime, everybody, be safe. listening to the Injured List Podcast with your host, Brian Scott, your go-to resource for all sport injury-related topics. For show notes and other resources, visit theinjuredlist.com.